The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. Hello, everybody. Today, our guest is Professor Michael Lynch from the Department of Philosophy and author of Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. Our conversation dives deep into these exact concepts and how philosophy is used today to glean insights about human behavior. I highly recommend this book. I found it a very compelling read, and I thought the logic was laid out in a very formulaic manner, allowing interpretability of these dense concepts that Dr. Lynch proposes. It'll make you think twice about your own human behavior, as well as the vulnerabilities and flaws that our cognition has. And a quick clarification, our co-host today is Jeff Rasmussen from an earlier episode in the podcast. He's filling in for Victor, who could not be here, unfortunately, for this episode. We hope you enjoy this conversation, and please check out Dr. Lynch's book, Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. Before we get into the book that we want to talk about today, I wanted to ask you a broader question, which is more of, what is the role of a philosopher in society today? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. I really appreciate it, really appreciate your willingness to have this conversation. And a uh, nice way, nice hard question to start with. Yeah. What's the role of a <laughs> philosopher in society? I think the role of the philosopher in today's society, I'd like to think, is the same role that it was in ancient Athens. So the role of, I think, a philosopher is to question the frameworks that we bring to the table in science or in politics mm -hmm. or in our daily lives. We all carry around with us a set of conceptual frameworks, a set of beliefs, a, a bunch of background presuppositions. And often we don't, in our busy lives, in scientific investigations or what have you, we don't have time to sit back and question some of those assumptions. And I think one of the roles that philosophers can play is in questioning those assumptions. Mm -hmm. That's not the only role. The role is to challenge things, to come up with new ideas, to question some of the big, big ideas or propose solutions to some of the biggest problems that we as humans face. But I think while lots of disciplines do those things, the sort of questioning of basic assumptions is something that philosophers are, well, particularly prone to do. Yeah. It's a very observational field, right? It's almost like you were saying earlier, Jeff, when we were talking before this, identifying trends in human behavior, right? You know, you're stepping back and you're looking from a different perspective or standpoint and you're saying, what is happening with the masses and why is this happening? And what is the implications for the future? I would be interested to hear your take on how intertwined philosophy and psychology are, because it seems as though to identify trends in a population, psychological trends, our beliefs. Um, and, I, and I saw this pattern in, in your writings and your, your TED talk. It seems as though you need to first establish predictable patterns of human behavior and then make assumptions based off of that. So is psychology kind of the jumping off point? With me as a philosopher, it often is, not with all philosophers. I think that a lot of philosophy is done hand in hand with particular sciences. So certain philosophers, logicians, for example, might work with mathematics or the foundations of mathematics to think about it in the same sense in which I am often working mm -hmm. with psychologists. And other philosophers who are interested in questions of justice, political justice, might be the people that are handing them the presuppositions and data about those presuppositions 
political scientist. You're right that in a lot of my recent work, anyway, not all my work, but in a lot of my recent work, it's been cognitive science mm -hmm. and psychology that's been really motivating or giving me the data that mm -hmm. I need to think about in order to, as you said, reflect on these widespread patterns of behavior. And as I would put it, the sort of mental states or attitudes that are sort of causing us to engage in that sort of behavior. Segwaying into your most recent work in this book, we'd like if you could provide, so that we don't inaccurately describe the work itself, you know, the motivations, but also a Cliff Notes overview of the segmented formulaic approach you're taking to this understanding of the relationship of arrogance with truth and politics. Sure. So this book is called Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. I suppose when I first started working on this project, uh, and I told people that I was thinking about politics and arrogance, uh, a number of years ago, people would raise their eyebrows and say, really? And then I'd say, yeah, and truth, too. <laughs> and they'd be like, huh, well, what is that? What do those things have to do? Yeah. Nowadays, I don't really have to explain it quite so mm -hmm. in the same level of detail. Because nowadays, I think most of us understand that we're at a point in our culture where it seems that the attitude that's most dominating our political interactions with one another is not just closed-mindedness, but a certain kind of dogmatic closed-mindedness mm -hmm. that I call arrogance. I mean, look, democracies need their citizens to have conviction. You know, as I say in the book, an apathetic electorate is no electorate at all. On the other hand, democracies also need their citizens to sometimes pay attention to each other's convictions right. uh, or at least, you know, be willing to improve in their own thinking, to appeal to the evidence, for example, to facts, those old-fashioned words <laughs> that used to mean something to yeah. us. So the puzzle of this book is how to balance those two obvious demands on democracy, the need to have conviction and what I call, at the end of the book, a type of intellectual humility. And the worry in the book is that there are all sorts of forces operating in our society right now, forces having to do with our psychology that are sort of, you know, baked into the human mm -hmm. condition, forces that have to do with our use of technology, and forces having to do, of course, with political ideologies that are rampant right now right. in our culture and others. And those forces are preventing us, I think, from coherently balancing those two virtues that I talked about a moment ago. Right. And I think one of the most evident of those forces at play every day, and most obviously, is those of social media and the polarization that is now taking place on social media, the information pollution, as well as the spreading of fake news, the spreading of news without vetting it, without reading it. I think it was 60% right, of articles are shared without being read first. Yeah. But what I found more interesting was from Facebook's use of like or deciding not to like something to then using a simple emoticon to convey emotion. And then that simple addition of an emoticon then vastly changes how people perceive and interact with material. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of us, and that includes me often, <laughs> can fool ourselves uh, about what it is or how it is that we're communicating on certain social media platforms. In particular, Twitter and Facebook come to mind, but Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, mm -hmm. is also an example. Snapchat, we can talk about that too, if you'd like. Mm -hmm. It's even more like 
in the direction I'm going to go. You know, I think a lot of times, especially those of us in, you know, academia or something, we think we're sharing stories to pass along knowledge or at least some recommendation, right? We're like, pay attention to this. Here are some interesting information you might want to take a look at. But as you alluded to, recent studies show that we're not often reading what Mm -hmm. we share. I know newsflash, everyone, right? (laughs) Not anybody, of course, everybody listening to this program, of course, reads everything they've ever shared. All of us, of course, we'd never not, we'd never, right? Uh, But, and then as you pointed out, also we react to things emotionally. And in fact, the platforms are designed to do that, not just with emoticons, but lots of data and the designers of the platforms themselves will tell you that you know, what predicts, and all of us actually know, we don't even need Mm -hmm. scientists to tell us this, right? We know from using it. How do you get your post reshared or retweeted? You put certain types of language in there. Right. Uh, I mean, cute (laughs) pictures help, definitely. But of course, why do those help? Because they evoke emotions, emotions of awe. Well, another type of emotion that's really good to get your content shared and retweeted is the emotion of outrage, Mm. of anger. Mm Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we think we're doing one thing. We think we're playing by the rules of scientific reason and knowledge and the reflective rules of reason when actually what we're doing is we're playing by the rules of the playground. We're playing by the rules of the water cooler. We're playing by the rules of emotion. And the rules of emotion, insofar there are rules, emotion is a great thing. What's problematic is when we don't realize that's the game we're playing. And I think sometimes... What happens is that, not just sometimes, I think, in fact, people who want to manipulate our lack of knowledge about what we're doing online, the fact that we're really engaging in sharing stuff to get each other riled up and to express our outrage and our tribal sentiments, people can take advantage of that. I mean, after all, the best sort of con is which plays on your audience's ignorance about what's really going on. Mm-hmm. If the con artist knows or the fake news purveyor knows that most people don't know why they're sharing things online, that's a super powerful bit of information. And it leads us to, I think, more of this arrogance, more of this know-it-all society that I'm concerned about. As you mentioned in your TED Talk, it does, I think, stem from the, it feels good to be right. It feels good to be. And so when you see other people share the same sentiment, it makes you feel more secure. Like you said, more information is available to us, but it's we're not actually diving deep and understanding the information and processing it as we should. And that can lead to some sort of arrogance. Do you think that we need a bipartisan effort to, like, for example, in the realm of politics, to sit down and get to the truth in these issues? Or because, like, let's say the left and the right, they both have their own spin on an objective news event, um, does this require a bipartisan effort? What could push us in the right direction? Right. So first, before I do that, let me just add, you're, of course, completely right that another aspect of the digital world in which we live in is that it, it, well, let me put it this way. All of us, at least I do, I feel 100% smarter when my phone is nearby, right? Because, you know, Google. And that availability of that information is certainly part of what encourages us to feel like we know more maybe than we do. Because, you know, we have this world of information in our pockets. Uh, And of course, part of the problem is that information, and this is what relates, I think, to the point that you're bringing up about politics, that information is tailored to fit our preferences. 
you know, the information that we receive when we search online is literally tailored by the platforms we use to fit the preferences that we've shown in the past in our past behavior, both online and off, because, of course, some of the information that these platforms use is information that's coming from your phone, even when you're not actually mm -hmm. using a particular app at the time. All of that means that our digital landscape is, as a lot of writers have written about, helping to construct these sort of echo chambers and bubbles, what we might call epistemic bubbles, bubbles of perceived knowledge around us. And that leads to this question of politics, because, of course, that means that a lot of people, when they're shopping for facts, are getting just the facts that their political preferences suggest they should pay attention to, and sometimes no facts at all. In your question about you know, bipartisanship in politics, I think that the truth, that is what is actually the case, and that's what I mean by the truth. When I talk about the truth, I mean to say that something's true is to say that it's the case, whether we know it or not. And defined in that sort of straightforward way, uh, which goes back to Aristotle, sort of simple common sense mm -hmm. way of defining truth, the truth is bipartisan by nature, right? right, there right, is, right. It has no partisan side. I mean, unfortunately, the ways in which we go and try to figure out what's true can become a partisan matter. Right. And so, for example, it's now sadly a partisan question in some aspects of our politics whether to employ the scientific method, broadly conceived, to answer certain sort of challenges in our world, including, for example, climate change, just to name one that might just pop into people's heads, vaccinations, vaccines, yeah. vaccination, yeah. even the shape of the earth, as we all know. Right? <laughs> there was a time when I would be on programs like this and I would like joke around about, you know, like, well, one thing we all can agree on is yeah, the earth yeah, isn't flat, yeah. right? People used to think that. It's getting well, tracked. sorry, internet. <laughs> right. Thank you, internet. Right? <laughs> flat earth is back again. So, I mean, what that suggests is that Politically speaking, I don't think we can really get to the point of your question. I don't think, and I don't think you were suggesting this, that we can, you know, have a congressional bipartisan truth commission, right? Sure. Because, uh, you know, politics. Right. But I do think that we do need to remember that at the end of the day, just because your political party says that something is the case doesn't mean it's the case. Sure. Truth isn't determined by politics. Sure. Yeah. And it seems more and more difficult as we rely more on a specific news source. If a specific news source is catering to one political party, it behooves them to push them more towards, not radicalization, but more towards just one line of thinking as opposed to saying, well, here's what the other side's saying, and there is merit in this, and maybe we could meet halfway. I would think it would behoove them more to confirm their biases in the way that they think instead of, like you said in your TED Talk, that it seems as though, like, I think you put it that instead of popping someone's bubble, you're like inflating it. You're inflating it. Yeah, and, and that's, it's harder to learn that you're wrong or that possibly somebody on the other side of the aisle could be right. And so it seems to me like the avenues through which we get our media, it would behoove them to not move things in a partisan manner. Yeah. Unfortunately, the personalization, as I said, of our digital platforms that we use every day, the apps that we used, all of which provide personalized information, which is, again, great for shopping for books and shoes, but not great for shopping for facts. That is what's often preventing people from doing this, because they don't know that the information they're getting is tailored. So, I mean, just knowing that, knowing that, oh, when I Google something, when you Google the same question that I do, that we might get different mm -hmm. results. 
Sure. I mean, a lot of people just don't even know that's the case. Try it at home, people. Wear your safety goggles. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are these concrete questions about how to break down biases. But part of what we need to realize is that there are social conditions right now that are encouraging people to be biased without us realizing that that's what's going on. And, and the way the, our social media and our digital platforms are constructed is part of that. But, of course, our politics is part of that, too. I don't think that, you know, the goal of sort of becoming more intellectually humble, which is what I think we should become less arrogant and sort of more aware of our own biases and more open to mm -hmm. our improving based on the evidence and experience of other people. That's what I mean by intellectually humble. I don't think, you know, being intellectually humble means that you have to be somebody who is always willing to compromise because, after all, it means being open to the evidence or being open to the experience that other people bring to the table that may supply some evidence that you haven't thought of, right? It can often, I think, lead to compromise for, for the very reason you mentioned, right? Because sure. sometimes when you pay attention to what other people are saying, you're like, oh, so that's what you're saying. Well, you know, maybe I can agree with part of that. And that's a good thing. So I don't think it inevitably leads to compromise. Sometimes it might not change our minds at all to listen to somebody. Sure. But it can also often teach us something about ourselves. I mean, one of the things is, is that, you know, talking to other people that have different views may not change your mind to think that, oh, yeah, I'm coming around. I'm voting for Trump. I mean, in my case, I'm not a Trump supporter. But on the other hand, I might learn about why other people are attracted to that mm -hmm. political view. And it may teach me something about what my presuppositions were about what right. would cause somebody to have that political viewpoint. So you can learn something about yourself as well just by being uh, willing to examine what other folks might be thinking. How do you combat the current two-party system, which clearly is becoming extremely polarized rather than homogenized, right? And in doing so, facilitates a lot of this bias in tribal culture. Do you break it down into five parties? Do you break it down into a moderate and extreme version of both sides as well as a moderate, total moderate party? And does that facilitate greater discourse and conversation between everybody? Or is that just not feasible given the you know, political architecture and social fabric that we currently have? I don't know if you have any ideas about you know, how we start to chip away at the current problems we face. So I think the problems we're facing now are pretty fundamental. Right. So I think before we can, and not everybody's going to agree with this, but I think before we can get to the question of, you know, should there be a viable multi-party system mm -hmm. in this country, uh, which seems plausible to me, that would be nice. But before we can talk about the nuts and bolts of why that's difficult to do, or let alone five, or right. what have you, However right? However many. Uh, or, you know, switching to something more like a parliamentary system. I mean, those sorts of political science arguments, really important to have. But I think before we can even get to that question, we need to think about what the, as we were talking about right at the beginning, the psychological and philosophical conceptual, that is, causes mm -hmm. for the kinds of polarization that we're in now and try to address them. I mean, I think one of the things that we need to be careful about is that some of the polarization right now is being encouraged by certain types of political ideologies. I mean, so one sort of political ideology that has been raising to the surface in a lot of countries right now, not just the United States, is a type of nationalism, right? Which is tribalism on its face, right? It's sort of unapologetic 
tribalism. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you know, and that's different, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that nationalism hasn't been around, but in countries like the United States for a while, it used to be the sort of thing that you didn't really sort of say out loud in public, right? right? Right. Uh, Just like, you know, implicit bias and institutional racism is a huge thing, but now we have the return of overt racism writ large in white nationalism. Mm -hmm. That sort of political phenomenon right, is something that I would say is sort of, I'm trying to say it's an illustration of how fundamental Mm -hmm. the differences are now. Because, of course, if you have a sort of tribalism on its surface, a nationalism that's like, look, you know, we're not actually down with you people. We don't think, you know, democracy, you know, that idea that we're all in the same boat? Uh -uh. Uh-uh. We're not on the same boat. You know, our whole party is like, you're out of the boat. You know, or you're off the island. That's our view, right? Right. When you're dealing with that, it's not like, you know, a sort of discussion of, well, you know, uh, how many parties should we have? (laughs) You know, really, you know, know, should we be more parliamentary? I mean, I'm saying those are important discussions, but that sort of type of attitude, that attitude of arrogance that's being encouraged by this sort of ideology, it sort of comes down like a hammer, I think, on our politics. And I think a lot of what people like you and I and a lot of the listeners are struggling to deal with right now is waking up and realizing that, oh my gosh, we're in the middle of these political conversations that are are not like the ones we used to have. Well, I mean, part of me questions our ability as animals, as humans, to even accomplish what we're saying, right? Like, we're tribal to begin with. Our minds are wired to be rudimentary analyzers of patterns. And when that's the case, biologically, are you able to truly have a population of 7 billion people step back and humbly recognize their biases and implicit misunderstandings of things, right? It's, it's a really hard problem because you can identify the fundamental flaws, but those fundamental flaws can be explained through biological reason, evolution reasons. And once that's the case, it's really hard to say, like, how do we combat that? Right? Right. How do we truly start? Well, first of all, of course, you're right. As I say in the book, a lot of the stuff is baked into human exactly. culture and mm-hmm. biology. Is like, are we? Out. Will we always be tribal? Yeah. Is that the to some extent, I think the answer is uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, in the same way that we want to combat violence, right? Right. But you know, we want to have more just societies. But to some extent, you know, injustice is going to be there. So that's the first thing is to recognize that, yeah, these are endemic problems. So any change that we make is going to be incremental. But that shouldn't make us get depressed about it. It just shows that, you know, stuff's hard. Mm -hmm. I think the first practical thing I can point out is that there are practices that humans have developed over the years to actually combat our biased, tribalist, intellectually arrogant nature. One that I mentioned in the book that is really basic Uh, so I'm going to go really basic and sort of get a lot less abstract, is the notion of a checklist. A checklist of the sort that pilots use. Mm -hmm. Now, pilots are confident. You want your pilot to be confident. I want want the pilot to be actually borderline arrogant. You know, Mm -hmm. I want them to be like, they know what they're doing. But pilots have for years used checklists. Why? Because what does a checklist do? Does it tell you anything that you don't already know if you're a well-trained pilot? Of course not. It's not like the pilot doesn't know that there should be gas in the plane. Right? What the checklist does is reminds the pilot that they might not know what they think they know. Right. And so a checklist is an example of a, it's a heuristic. 
it's a method that we've come up. And what we need to do is to think about those institutions and practices in our society that are function sort of like the checklist, mm-hmm. that remind us. And then we need to, as human beings, invest capital, social and otherwise, into those pro- structures. Now, speaking to two scientists, I don't think I have to convince you that, broadly <laughs> speaking, the institution of science, for all its flaws, for all the facts that blind review doesn't always right. work the way we want it to work, for all the facts that, or reasons that reviewer number two can be <laughs> really <laughs> annoying. Uh, yeah, not everything works in science, but broadly speaking, the institution is set up to check mm-hmm. our individual biases and prejudices. That's the point of having reviewer number two. Right. Right? Is it perfect? No. And obviously, the legal system is, an, uh, is we, we hope, is function, again, maybe imperfectly. So I could go on with some of these examples, but what I'm trying to point out is that we don't have to reinvent new things. What we have to remember is that some of the institutions that we've created are institutions that are meant to encourage intellectual humility. It's no surprise, therefore, is it, that the political ideologies that I was mentioning earlier are often ideologies that are not particularly comfortable with the Mm -hmm. institutions that I'm talking about because those institutions are encouraging the attitudes of open-mindedness, critical inquiry. And the ideology, Mm -hmm. it does not sit well with those attitudes. Let's take a few minutes because I do want to talk a step back from the book and all these ideas and just ask you how you got involved in philosophy in the first place. You know, in your early academic career, at what time did you say, you know, I want to do that? So uh, my first philosophy class was at 8.30 in the morning. Uh, I was a freshman, you know, so that's how mm-hmm. that happens. Mm-hmm. And we've all been there. And I didn't know what philosophy was. I mean, some people I've now realized take, like, you know, they go to fancy high schools and they take philosophy and Latin and stuff and all that good stuff. I didn't have that. So I didn't know what it even was. It was just a requirement, so I took it. Right. And I would say by the end of that first class, I had this mind-blowing experience of, oh, my God, I didn't know that people thought about questions like this. And I had this sort of feeling, and I think a lot of us who get involved in various mm-hmm. topics had this feeling, like, I've fallen into, like, these people speak the secret language of the universe. Right. And it was really that sort of experience that suddenly I had available to me the possibility of exploring questions that I didn't know people had devoted their lives to exploring. And so that's how I got into philosophy was that one first class. Um, and after that, well, you know, I was hooked. <laughs> Do you have any other books you're planning to write in the future? Any future ones? Oh, I'm always planning to write yeah. write some books. Do you have any ideas uh, percolating? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I'm interested in writing about the imagination. Uh, I think that's a that's I, I I would like to return to the question of imagination and digital technology. Mm-hmm. I think that's a what are the devices that I've written about in the past right. that I very much used? What might that be doing to us as creative creatures? Uh, good things and bad things, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I would like to continue to write about politics. Uh, and my old standby, I can mm-hmm. never get away from it, is thinking about what truth is and why it's valuable to us as human beings. Yeah. Thank you very much. This is great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Check out all of our material on iTunes or Spotify. You can check out our social media at InVivoPod for both Twitter and Instagram. And email us with any comments or suggestions at invivo.podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Kyle Drake. You can find me on social media at underscore Kyle Drake. The people who make this possible are co-host Victor Kaye. You can find him as well at underscore Victor Kaye. Our editor is the awesome Kevin Ryan. 
He can be found at The Golden Whammy Bar. And our illustrator is Sarah Demers at underscore, 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 try Sarah Top, underscore, underscore. We'd like to thank our funding from the Office of the Vice President for Research and the Office of the Provost. Thank you very much.